Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast, supplying you with the tools and insights to access your business's full potential. of Innovation Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Mader, and welcome back to part two of a conversation we had uh, in the last episode with Sonia Kreschevek, former executive at Pearson and leader in the innovation space who then had an abrupt life shift where she went on her own personal journey. And what we're discussing is how do we use this moment of disruption to fundamentally recalibrate how we move forward as more human-centered organizations and build in the kind of human resiliency, flexibility, and innovation that is going to be needed to constructively come out of this period of crisis. So we're picking up, starting with some insights about where our corporate structures even came from, and going into some of the personal development side of what it takes to unlearn some of these structures that are now in our way. You know, we forget that our corporate structures came from the military. Like we actually yeah. use that as our model, which is very top-down, very order-driven. Uh, you know, if you go into the service, they, it's a point of pride that we break you down to build you back up. Mm. And you're trained to dispense with your personhood and follow orders. So if you now work it out into the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, even the, the business suit itself was quite literally an identity that you put on where you know, early business suits yeah. were not that different than military uniforms. No. And you shut off your personhood and anything you did under the guise of this is business, this is work, this is my, you know, uniform, kind of all is forgiven. But now if you fast forward to where we are now, people, I mean, especially millennials, there's talked about like they're a problem all the time. And really, no, they get it. They actually get that it's unworkable the way we've been going and they can't stand to see the world burn anymore and they want to be part of it. And guess what? They probably can only sell their soul for a paycheck for a year or two before they bounce out to a, yeah. go off to Bali or something like that. And, you know, yeah. but I think you're bringing up a really important point here. Right. And I think the world we had back in the fifties and sixties, where you know, men especially were a majority of the workforce mm -hmm. and, I think it's a gender issue as well. Men are better at compartmentalizing. So you can put a suit, go to office, work your hours, leave your problems at work and come back to your wife and kids. You don't have to cook or clean. You know, someone else has done mm -hmm. all of that. And so you can play multiple roles. Women cannot compartmentalize like that. If you're a mother, I can tell you for a fact, I felt guilty my whole working life. If I'm at work, I feel guilty because I'm not at home. If I'm at home, I feel guilty that I'm not doing my job properly. It's impossible for us to compartmentalize in the same way. And so we have struggled more than, than you guys. And then technology comes into play. The digital disruption comes into play. And your work life starts to you know, go seep into your personal life because we are on our devices, we are answering emails after dinner, we are working when we are on our holidays. That boundary has disappeared. And it's much harder to compartmentalize and say, well, I'm now working between these hours and hence I can be just my work self and then I can be, you know, my personal self and then I can be a friend or whatever. It's impossible to do so. And then it's important that more than ever that we teach people how to integrate all of that so they don't feel like they're losing their mind or they feel like they cannot do both. I mean, you hear all these people talking about, you know, work-life balance. Why? 
because there is no work-life balance. There has been any work-life balance. You feel constantly pressured into choosing one or the other. And we are not in a world where we have to choose anymore in the same way that our parents had to choose. And so everything has to change. If you have those military structures, which are kind of 19th century industrial type of, you know, the org chart hasn't really changed. No. Then you have a workforce that's still based on, you know, some 20th century skills and talent development, outdated practices. Then you, you know, layer that with 21st century, with millennials coming out, with the disruption happening at scale that we haven't seen before, with the whole planet imploding from the climate change perspective you have this mishmash of things that just don't fit together anymore. Yeah. You want to create flexibility in the organization from, you know, from the perspective of, you know, how we do things, how we think, how we react to what's happening in the world around us. To do that, you need to have a structure that's as flexible as that. Otherwise, it doesn't work. You know, I've been in organization where, you know, we have organizations who have grown through acquisition. And every time you acquire a company, you acquire everything from that company, right? You acquire technology, all the platforms, you acquire HR systems, you legally acquire different contracts in terms of ways of working right. and job descriptions. And all of a sudden, you're in conglomerate of, you know, 50,000, 60,000 people, all in different T's and C's, right? You can't even move people. We had that problem at Pearson. You can't move people from one department to another because they are different contracts. So what kind of flexibility is organization you have? You know, we can talk about adaptability, we can talk about fast failure, but if fast failure of a project means we have to fire that person, of course you're not going to allow for fast failure to happen. Right. But if you're an organization where, you know, fast failure is actually possible because, you know what, we are stopping this work today and from tomorrow you're working on something else that the organization has decided is more important. Why shouldn't that be possible? But we don't have structural flexibility in which that is possible. And so, you know, there is complexity to all these layers of inflexibility, if you want. Well, well, you bring up an interesting point about how we talk about innovation. Um, how many right. of us first are brought in to do, quote unquote, innovation, and we're all sitting there being like, well, this culture is just completely locked up and despondent and cynical and resigned. And all you do is some entry level uh, exercises to get people out of their left brain thinking and mm. pat yourself on the back for maybe getting creative for a moment. But most people only want to innovate to get a new product out there or a new platform when really transforming or innovating your HR services to actually have your the the organs of your operation working in concert together. Like most mm. innovation to be done in a company is in its processes and in its functions internally before it could even be productive yeah. outwardly but try selling those services <laughs> but it's also i think about um protecting the status quo protecting yeah. the existing business model right so yeah. i look at education which is a perfect example you know i've spent so many years with pearson but also you know my mom was a teacher you know i have kids who are at school so it's been always a passion of mine Nothing has really changed from the times you know I went to school or you went to school. The business model is the same. And so if we are innovating, and I'm using the quotes here, we're really talking about digitizing the content. We are talking about offering some services online in order to protect the status quo. I mean, there was a brilliant example yesterday in papers here. Cambridge University is thinking about what they're going to do next year with their students who are studying the language 
And as a result, we need to spend a year abroad and you know, that's probably not gonna be possible. So they're gonna come up with a solution where you can do virtual language immersion online from your home living with your parents. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, they may think that this is super cool. You know, they're thinking creatively VR, outside of the yep. They're going to use technology, probably not VR. You know, it's going to be more basic than that. <laughs> but it's the solution is going to be, you know, somewhat simplistic. The business model doesn't change. The business model they're protecting, they're saying, we are going to charge you the fees. We are offering this online so we don't lose the fees because we cannot afford to lose your fees. We will not be able to pay our teachers, we're going to lose the funding, the grants, whatever, right? So we are in a very protective mode and we are not thinking about you as a customer, what you need mm -hmm. as a student, how we can best facilitate your learning. Instead, what we are saying is you're going to pay fees, nothing is going to change for us, and we're going to simulate this learning for you so you may achieve the same result or not, but that's not here nor there. What's important is that we protect ourselves. The fees are going to be the same. Right. You know, there was that outcry in New York at the beginning of the crisis where students were complaining about NYU fees and asking for fees to be, you know, given back because, you know, they're not learning. I know, you know, a lot of us here who are paying private school fees have felt the same around, you know, is this really the same thing? They're right. learning from home. I need to help with schooling. I need to provide hot lunch and food and all of that. I need to encourage learning in impossible situations. I'm not getting paid for that, that's for sure. So how do we start to truly innovate means that we need to allow for some disruption to happen of yeah. us as well. If we are saying these are the boundaries and we need to protect ourselves and nothing can change for us as an organization, then we are not really concerned with customer. We can be talking about customer empathy, but we are not really in a listening mode, right? We are in a selling mode. We are trying to convince you that you should buy this product from us because our product is better than, you know, competitor's product. But we don't really care about how you feel and what you really need. We are trying to convince you with our clever marketing campaigns that this is something you need. Whether it solves your problem or not, we are not concerned with that. This is why innovation fails, right? Because we are not giving you what you need. We are not even asking you what you need. I mean, we had some examples Again, when I started at first and we are, you know, testing some of the lean startup methods and really experimenting and doing co-design with teachers, we had teachers who cried because we put a team together with them in the classroom to observe first, to interview them, to do some co-design with them. And they said, no one ever came to ask us what we need. Because the company just assumed that we know education as well as teachers. And, you know, if we sell them the product, it's with the best pedagogy that we can think of not taking into consideration how is your life as a teacher? What do you need? How you teach kids? What do these kids now need? Because I can tell you, I have two kids, 25 and 14, almost 15, two different generations altogether, right? So how my son is learning is very different from how my daughter learned 10 years ago. So how do we take that into account? Are we really honest with ourselves if we say, I haven't stepped into inside the classroom in the last 10 years, but I know what kids need or right. how teaching has changed? Of course not. And so where is our empathy? Where is the, our humility where we say, actually, we don't know. We have some great ideas. How about we go sit in a classroom, we speak to them, we observe for a week. We don't say a word about our idea. We just look, observe, see how things are done now. I, I this did is a, what's needed here. 
I did. A, I work with an organization in Calcutta in the red light district, and we took uh, some of the young women on to back into the brothel area to interview young women about their feminine hygiene uh, habits. Well, they didn't realize that they'd already been given a pretty amazing education, but we turned them into social anthropologists. And it was one of the most re rewarding aspects of them coming back and getting present to the world of somebody else and realizing getting so present to the challenges and the difference that they could make. And so it was, uh, you know, in this particular case, I mean, obviously it's funny, I'm a six foot four white guy, you know, talking about <laughs> menstruation to <laughs> young women, but they got really freed up around that too. But when you start to engage in that process, people come alive. Why? Because they get connected to other human beings. They get connected to their ability to create and to, to do something that's going to make a difference. And I was so blown away when they came back, they suddenly started creating ideas about how they could actually come up with a, an, an amazing kit that would actually address all of their needs. And boy, maybe we could do this. And the, uh, the innovation that comes from getting connected to a human and discovering your ability to want to make life better for others is such a catalyst in this process of innovation. And it's, you know, as somebody who's working companies, it's almost like taboo to say that. Because, you know, yeah. how, how can you know what somebody else needs when you haven't stopped to listen to yourself and done that personal work? And so, yeah. uh, you know, when we talk about this 70% failure rate, we really are saying like, no, that messiness of human being that you're avoiding, that's where the magic is. That's, that's actually where the value has been locked up. No different than a, you know, raw material stuck in a mountain. Like that's where it is. And the more leadership can access their own humanity, bring it to the workplace, the more you're going to tap into your, uh, your, the humanity of your employees the more that these systems and approaches and these methods of becoming nimble and flexible will become self-evident when you go through these processes. And it is yeah. completely feasible and foreseeable that companies actually develop the ability to come up with new ideas, quickly prototype, iterate, and able to present new ideas that are seen as value added rather than a threat to the very company that you work for. And I think that that's really something that we can look forward to for people who are willing to take that on. Yeah. If you think about all the structures, all the processes in the organizations, we have made them up. You know, they didn't come from external world. No one forced them on us as organization, right? But what you have and why is it so hard to change them is that people have personally invested in them. Right, there is this personal attachment to this process, this way of working, my spreadsheet versus your spreadsheet, my solution versus your solution. And if someone tries to take that away, it's like taking a toy from a small child, right? We feel personally, right? It's like someone saying, You're not good enough. I'm taking this toy away, I'm replacing the toy with something else. That means I'm replacing you in many ways because, again, we have identified with that as that's part of our identity now, this little tool that we have invented or this procedure that we have put in place. This is why people don't allow for anything to change. They come up with different reasons. They talk about regulations. They talk about other things. They blame external factors because it's much easier to say it's regulator or government or law than to say, actually, it's my baby and I don't want you taking it away. 
And then we behave in a similar way when we go speak to customer, right? We have already decided what is the problem we are trying to solve. We have already decided what the solution is. So when we go and do the pretend interview, it's in order to confirm what we know, not to open up and see what is the problem that we actually, so are we solving the right problem or not? Right. I mean, for me, that's a starter. We should never go beyond that. That's the basis for everything. Are we solving the right problem? Do you even have a problem? What is the problem? <laughs> the How one. can I learn from you? Right? It's a big one. It's, a, it's the biggest problem. Can we articulate the problem? Is it real? Are people willing to pay for it? Whether you're building a product or solving a solution for uh, organization, a new process or ways of working, you're solving a climate change. It starts with that. It starts with you know, acknowledging that we first need to understand what is the problem we are trying to solve. Second, trust the knowledge that we cannot solve it alone, that we are all interconnected. There are so many dependencies. I mean, just if you try to uncouple things in a large organization, it's overwhelming, right? Yep. In society, even more so. Now that we're dealing with this pandemic, oh my God, is it not clear how much we are depending on each other? You know, the virus that originated in one country can blow the whole world and put it to its knees in a couple of months, right? Because we are connected and we cannot solve it alone. You know, all our attempts in the last couple of months, each government, you know, trying a different solution. Of course, it doesn't work. As soon as you start to open the borders, we have a problem again. So what are we going to do now? Get Stay locked in our homes for the rest of our lives just because we are not able to look at this as a system problem and say, Everything is connected. We are interdependent. Closing borders is not going to help. Closing yourself to just your department and doing things perfectly within your department is not going to help organization. We need to work together to solve any problem in organization, in community. We need to work together. We need to identify all the dependencies. We need to look at you know, where the challenge is. How can we shift the system together? That means no fixed structures, no silos, no fixed ways of working, no fixed mindsets. You know, we need to sit around the table, all the skills and tools that we need to start to look at the problem in a, with a fresh pair of eyes, with a, a different perspective. And we need to include all the stakeholders we need to solve the problem. Yep. You cannot say, well, it's just a technology problem. So the rest of the organization can go on their merry journey. I mean, when you talk about digital transformation, that's what you hear. Oh, that's a problem for a CIO. The rest of the organization, no, we don't need to change. And so what do we do? Go and change the technology a little bit, reorganize, put some platforms in place. And surprise, surprise, it doesn't work. Why? Because the business model hasn't changed. So the whole thing blows in our face. The ways of working hasn't changed. We are in silos. The silos have been maybe slightly reorganized, but still silos. Mm -hmm. Well, but you point to that big systematic issue, which is that if you have leadership who has not been sensitive to all of this stuff, they largely have lost the talent that has been nimble thinking, able to actually work in a horizontal fashion. And they actually probably have a high number of people who only take orders and aren't going to be great critical thinkers. Um, this other topic, which is, you know, the people who are naturally good at this are the people who probably spent time in the arts and the humanities who very decidedly would never have gone into these kinds of jobs who now are needed more than ever. Uh, you know, the people who have studied topics because they're passionate about it, who went to gain mastery in something because they wanted to, to 
see the complexity in something. Or, you know, there's a whole department at IBM that um, half of the uh, members of this coding department are all jazz musicians. Well, why would they do that? Why? Because people who can play jazz can think on multiple levels and can listen and interact and be nimble and responsive, which is what they and need. And can improvise really well. And improvise. <laughs> so, you know, I, I see that the future of, of work is going to, you know, used to, the, the contract was if you want to go off into the arts or even when I became a literature major, the joke that people were serious about was like, I hope they teach you how to say, do you want fries with that? And because the pedagogy was, if you go do something that you're passionate about, you're making a deal that you're going to go be a starving artist. Mm -hmm. Well, the very skill sets that we're talking about are actually well known. They're just well known by people who never wanted to go into corporate America. And there's, I think this yes. huge opportunity to bring these people in who, uh, you know, who have traveled the world, who know a few different languages, who have seen how people do things in different parts of the world, who have learned multiple things that require a, a lot of nuance and flexibility and uh, uh, ambiguity, because yeah. these are the kinds of people who you can give technical skills to. You can Absolutely. train them up in your system. What you can't train so easily is the ability to be with ambiguity, to be able to yeah. empathize, to know how to tap into somebody else's humanity because you've done the work on yourself. And so yeah. I think there's this opportunity, even if you look at the hiring structures for so many big companies, they draw from the same universities who cranked out the same people following mm -hmm. the same track to think yeah. in the same ways. And they just won't survive doing more of that. No, no. I was in a leadership training when I was at Pearson. It was super interesting. And she came and talked to us about diversity and a funny fact, you know, when Lehman Brothers went down, apparently the whole leadership team was from Harvard. And so there was no ability for them to think differently. They were all, you know, yep. cookie-cuttered, same education, same way of thinking, same way of approaching the problem. And when they were faced with this big ambiguity of how to fix it, they couldn't come up with anything outside of what they have been taught. Right. And so they all came up with the same solution, obviously didn't work out for that. And so, you know, it's interesting when you mentioned jazz. Uh, I'm a huge fan. I've been listening to so much jazz now that we are in isolation, tuning in and to everything wonderful that's happening in New York. But the, one of the main reasons I love jazz is I love observing jazz musicians when they play. I love the dynamic that happens. I love how they feed of each other. I love the internal jokes that you can see happening on the on the stage right because this is what true improvisation is all about you know one of you goes in a direction the rest follow right then you know you go on a journey and the rest follow it's beautiful the trust that exists on that stage between the members of, of the of the band how they feed of each other i've never seen that in corporate america i have never seen that at the executive table that level of trust that level of support that if you go and improvise your teammates are gonna you know provide that space for you yeah. to do so they're gonna support you they're gonna follow then you're gonna extend the courtesy back we are just not set up in that way we have disconnected from that curiosity from that creativity you know, we talk about corporate America and how, or corporate UK for that matter, how we have been preconditioned to behave in a certain way. But unfortunately, I think the problem started much earlier. Our schools have been the, the first problem, right? Because yeah. if you were 
on either side of the spectrum at school, whether super talented or struggling, the school wasn't really for you. The school was, you know, catered from an average kid who can behave well. You know, your behavior, yep. I mean, in some schools, you still Push get a great behavior, to the middle. right? Right? Behavior is judged in the same way. Yep. You don't get a good grade if you think for yourself, if you challenge your teacher. That's not considered a good behavior. So what have we done in these schools? You know, make it really difficult for talented kids, for kids who need extra help, who, for kids who are different to fit in. Because we had a mold where we create the same outcome. And of course, we have a situation that we have now where philosophy, creativity, arts, thinking outside of the box of the norm, in a retrospective work, you know, all of that has been disregarded for many, many years. This is not how you pay bills. You have to go in a career, which means you enter this path of so selling your soul, doing the work that you're not happy with, behaving in a certain way, becoming over years more and more disillusioned with the whole thing until you wake up one day and say, what was the purpose of all of this? It's a very sad existence and not one that I want for our kids. So I think these are the types of conversations we definitely need to have. And the other thing I wanted to mention back to the previous conversation we had is if you look at that structure of command and control mm -hmm. and siloed you know, organizations, it isn't until you get to a top, which is basically your CEO, that you can see the whole organization. Yeah. Right? So that's not a good position for any CEO to be in because all you're doing is getting siloed information from your subordinates. You know, your CFO is telling you his perspective from finance, but he doesn't have the full vision of what's happening in the organization. Your CIO is telling you how your technology is doing. And so we are asking an impossible from our CEO. We are asking our CEO who is not an expert in any of those fields to do the system thinking for this whole impossible complex mm -hmm. system and deduct based on information that he's been or she has been given what the right solution is. I can tell you one thing. I've been system thinker my whole life. That's such an overwhelming prospect for anyone. It's yep. unsolvable. And so when you present unsolvable problem to someone, you don't give them tools to solve it. The organizational structure is not inducive for you delegating that to people who are closer to the ground and can actually give you the right information. Of course, you opt out of that and you say, you know what, I'm going to do what I do best, right? Which is command and control. You know, I'm going to blame someone if it doesn't work. I'm going to mm -hmm. pity them against each other. So, you know, there's always some sort of a struggle going on. You know, CFO against CIO, CIO against the, you know, president of a business line. And somehow you mask the problem and you survive your tenure, you know, four or five years in the organization. As long as, you know, your shareholders are happy, you do the 10% cut every year. And that's what we do. And now we're at the point where it has to happen at a deeper level in the organization, much deeper level, where people actually understand what the problem is, where can understand the intricacies of all the dependencies, not at the CEO level. Well, and all of that works as long as everything's going along okay. But we just hit a brick wall. And so yeah. now it's like, you know, look, there's there's a lot of big companies that have uh, cash on hand that will last a certain amount of time, but mm -hmm. how much of that time are they going to spend doing more of that and jockeying and still just out, you know, 
not putting in these things that we're pointing to, you know, they will ultimately break. I mean, brittle, brittle breaks under stress. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about being resilient, it is flexible, it is malleable, it can move with under stress. And, uh, you know, by the way, I I should put a plug in for a movie here. And I'm trying to figure out how to say this without giving spoiler alerts. (laughs) The movie Arrival with Amy Adams would be really great uh, watching for any leader. Um, It is about aliens descending upon the world and trying to figure some things out amidst a a massive global shutdown. Uh, I'll I'll leave it at that. But in, in terms of what that paradigm of leadership looks like, it's going to require pulling instead of pushing. And, um, you know, look, I think you and me were on the same page about this. You know, any of, any of the stuff that we're speaking about fluently really comes from our own personal journeys uh, and, and all of the yeah. things we've taken on individually. And we really respect that that part is actually oftentimes the hardest part for people. So what we're actually uh, encouraging people is to reach out to us. We're going to start holding a series of small private chats, very small groups, really to just give people a space to speak and, and kind of voice what they're dealing with, to even have a place where it's okay to not have to know it all. And yeah. I think that in these times, trying to uh, do this on our own and in isolation is just a recipe for failure. And so uh, we're opening up if this, if this is resonating with you, but you're not exactly sure where to go or you're looking for a community like Seed Time, Sonia's new startup. Um, you know, we want leaders to be supported in this because unless this work is done, it's going to be really hard to imagine, you know, positive outcomes and, you know, everybody could use some support along the way and be pointed in the right direction. So I'm making myself available. Sonia's making herself available. And we're really interested to hear, uh, you know, what you guys are dealing with and, and really how to really chart the ways forward and connect resources and, and connect people with the people that would really help uh, in this time. Yeah, I think it's time we stop trying to be perfect. I think that that has led to so much unhappiness, to so much problems in organization as well. I think we need to stop expecting our leaders to be perfect and to know everything and to take care of us. I think we all need to step up and take accountability for our own happiness, for living our own purpose. You know, it takes courage and comes at the cost of making decisions that are not easy always mm-hmm. or not popular always. But that's what we need to do as adults. You know, this is the example we want to set for, for our kids. And that trying to be, you know, per- perfect all the time means we don't allow ourselves to, to fail. We don't allow ourselves to learn anything. We are on this path when we are really making our lives impossible for ourselves and, and for people around us. And it's not something, you know, anyone can relate to. I've shared with you, you know, some of my personal story before with my daughter who, you know, had me as an example growing up through, you know, very turbulent teenage years, you know, her dad and I divorced. She struggled with that, you know, with her identity, with bullying at school, all sorts of issues. And she had me as an example, you know, how can you relate to someone who is working 17 hours a day, who on paper seems perfect, who never complains, it's, it's impossible, you know, she felt she couldn't measure up and it took years of me breaking my perfection and sharing a lot of personal 
stuff. You know, as we said, it's not the perfect product at the end you want to share with people. It's the journey of how you got to where you got to in life. Yeah. And, you know, all the struggles on that path. And me just opening up and being human with her finally and being super vulnerable and telling her what I'm going through and how challenging I'm finding some aspects of this journey just transformed her life, you know? And it's been beautiful to see how quickly you can have an effect on, on your kids, on your loved ones, on your, you know, teammates, on your colleagues, just by being yourself and by treating yourself with kindness and with not expecting the perfection, with, you know, not judging yourself for not doing the right thing. I mean, how many times did I go back home from work having been in a meeting where I didn't feel I performed best and, you know, spend the night rethinking the meeting and torturing myself mm -hmm. for not doing this or not doing that. I'm, I'm sure everyone can relate to, to those stories. I mean, we make up a lot of things in our mind. Our minds are, you know, torturing us sometimes. And, and as one of Indian gurus said, you know, at least if the world is not kind to ourselves, we can, our mind can be kind to ourselves. Yeah. So, can we learn to be kind? Can we learn to really extend that kindness to ourselves in every sphere of our lives? And especially now when we are dealing with situations that we have never experienced before. I've mentioned my dad, he's 85. He lived through Second World War. He then lived through Yugoslavia falling apart. And he said openly that this is the worst time that he can ever you know, experience being locked at home, not being able to see us, not knowing whether he's ever going to see us, he found this more challenging than, than the war. And so I think that gave me perspective of, you know, okay, this is a challenging time for everyone. Yeah. This is, we are not making this up. If you don't feel productive right now, it's okay. You know, don't expect perfection. You don't have to cook, you know, a six course, uh, you know, <laughs> dinner every single night, you know, I think we are so competitive by, by nature as well. You know, if you see all these, you know, Instagram posts, everyone is now a Michelin star chef and everyone mm -hmm. is doing yoga at home and everyone is home schooling their kids. Very rarely people post and say, actually, I'm struggling. I'm still in my pajamas. You know, it's 6 p.m. and my kids ate, you know, cold pizza again today. That would be more accurate, you know, representation of what's going on now. Us saying, you know what, I don't feel motivated. How about I take a day off? Well, you have our, our uh, prime minister. I love, thank you for um, our, your glowing assessment of our governor here. But our uh, prime minister in New Zealand is somebody to particularly look at who yeah, she's been working being prime minister from home with kids climbing over her, her gray roots coming in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, again, we're, we're shattering so many myths right now that leadership looks like the three-piece suit and the right car and all of that. And I think we've just finally hit the point where we're seeing the bankruptcy of that, that there's no way to know right now. And the most effective leaders are the ones who are showing their humanity. I mean, you're literally seeing the insides of your boss's house now. You're seeing their mm -hmm. kids running in the background. It's time to strip away yeah. the pretense. And, you know, for me, as a creative and somebody who's always tortured about my, you know, creativity, I always remember seeing amazing works of art and being like, wow, I'll never do that. I could never. The parts that empowered me the most were to actually hear the stories of other people's struggles en route to something that became great. And yeah. I think that that's what you and I are really advocating for is to have a space where people can cut the crap, 
bring their humanity up, stop looking good and allow other people to contribute to them because we're not going to figure this out with the old way of thinking. And we're not going to get through this and create the world or the companies or that the, the kind of person that we really want to be by trying to look good through it. I think what's equally sad and beautiful is that on the other side of all these mental structures and processes and tools that we have put in our way is absolute freedom to do whatever we want, to be whoever we want to be. You know, if we are co-creators of our own life, our own destiny, our own identity, that means we can write whatever we want. This is our story. You know, if you don't like it, write a new chapter, change the channel as they say, right? And so why not reinvent ourselves? Why not allow that for possibility for our communities for, you know, yes, we can say right now, we're going to continue with our rigid structures. Everything has to be perfect. We have to continue. We need to save capitalism. We need to save economy. Or we can say, you know what? We can save human life on this planet. What would that look like? If we start with that premise, everything changes. And we allow ourselves freedom to truly be creative, to truly innovate on agreeing a new way of living, new way of working for all of us. And I think this is a start for me. It can be a beautiful start for everyone. Yeah. Well, with that, we shall conclude this podcast. And again, we're going to make ourselves available for people who do want to have some access to just, I don't call it a safe space or whatever it is, but uh, some a space for people to really just air out what's going on, start to get present, and of course, connect you to any resources that we think are going to be really helpful in your own personal journey to expanding your leadership and then really creating what's going to come out of all this stuff. So, Sonia Krestrovic, thank you for joining us today. We look forward to the next series of conversations and uh, can't wait to see you soon. Okay, thank you. If you'd like to learn more about our workshops or consulting and innovation strategy services, please visit us at evolutionofinnovation.com or email us at hello at evolutionofinnovation.com.